Well, if you're just joining us, we are partway through a sermon series through the book of James that we are calling Complete. And the reason we're calling it that is because the book of James was written to sand off the rough edges in your faith and make you mature and complete in Him. And we're partway through chapter 1 now, and chapter 1 has had a lot to say about the sufferings in your life. Uh, You might remember in the very first week we opened this book together, it had a lot to say about why sufferings are in your life. They're there to give you endurance because you're going to need it. And the next week we talked about the fact that sometimes the suffering in your life kind of overwhelms you and makes you realize that you don't have enough wisdom to deal with life's problems. And so the word is there to tell us to ask the Lord for wisdom. Well, this week we're going to talk about the fact that the sufferings of life, though hard to walk through and though also they reveal the fact that we need wisdom, sometimes they bring with them very special temptations to compromise and to sin. And so we're going to talk about just what to do when the temptation in your life feels overwhelming and when you don't quite know what to do about it. One of the things we've talked about is that dark season that some of you have gone through and some of us go through when you lose a spouse. And I have never lost a spouse, but I can't imagine how dark of a time that must be. Uh, Now, if you haven't been through that, imagine with me what it could be like to come home like that to a lonely house every day. Uh, You know, your kids have grown up, they have flown away, so they aren't coming by so much anymore. Some of your friends have moved away, some of them have gone home to be with the Lord, so they don't come by much anymore. And in the midst of that heartache and loneliness, imagine if all of a sudden someone wonderful just pops into your life, and they just bring the life back into you. That would be a time of great rejoicing, but also a time of great temptation to make that relationship something that you shouldn't make it. Because in your heartache and in your sorrow, well, sometimes there's weakness there, and sometimes special temptation will come to you, and sometimes you will be up at night saying, Lord, I can handle this loneliness, I can handle these tears, but I cannot handle this temptation. Help me, God. What do you do when the hardship of life brings great temptation with it? For some people, it's very different. For young people, often, I mean, for young parents, often it has to do with just straight sleep deprivation, right? Like you haven't slept in like four years because these kids are up all night and they're crying, they're doing this and they're doing that. And so maybe you've got a new baby in the house and so for months you've been getting up every night caring for this baby that's crying and you can't figure out how to get it to stop crying. And, you know, after enough of that, well, it it just starts to get to you. And you can get to the point where you're so sleep deprived, and I've been to this point before, you're so sleep deprived that your anger can be triggered just like that. And it seems like the worst side of you can come out sometimes. And so young parents can be in these situations where a person who had no proneness to anger before all of a sudden finds himself just really tempted to anger toward their spouse or toward their boss or toward one of their children just because it's been years since they've had a good night of sleep. So it's one thing to ask the Lord for help in the suffering of that. It's another thing when that suffering brings temptation to sin. Oftentimes, the sufferings in life bring temptation with them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look in this word and ask the Lord, what do we do in that very situation? Because something that you've heard me say a lot around here and you'll hear me say a whole bunch is that the Lord wrote this book to show you his glory so that you could marvel in it and to teach you his ways so that you could walk in them. 
And the most important of those glories, the most important of those ways to walk in is what we call the gospel, which is just the simple truth that Jesus died to forgive sinners and he rose to offer us new life. And he calls sinners everywhere to turn from their sin and to follow him. So this morning he's going to call us to follow him and he's going to show us just a little bit of what following him looks like. So turn with me if you would to James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you and start at the back and flip to page 177. We're going to read James 1 and we're going to start at verse 12 and then we're going to go to verse 18. The Lord writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which is the Lord, has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then lust, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Amen. Well, if you have ever worked in a daycare or worked at a school or ever parented children or worked with kids or middle schoolers or high schoolers in any kind of capacity, you've probably had to break up a lot of fights in your time. A lot of squabbles, a lot of quarrels, and you just got to get in there and you got to break it up. And if you've done that very much, you've probably learned something about humanity. You've probably learned that we are very good at blaming our problems on other people, aren't we? I mean, you get in there, say you got a bunch of middle schoolers, and there's a, there's a fight in your middle school, and you got to bust in there, and you got to break it up, and you're like, okay, what happened? And the first one is like, well, he hit my friend, and so I hit him. It's his fault. He started to hit my friend. And so then the next one is like, well, no, he was picking on me, and so I hit him. What else am I going to do? And then the third one is like, well, he was standing there looking all dumb, so I had to pick on him, right? What else could I do? Like, Nobody is, is possibly like responsible for what they've done, right? We're just pointing fingers at each other. This is how we handle our sin and our problem. When you know you've done something bad, what's the first thing you do? You blame the person next to you. Find somebody whose fault it is. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, the very first people to disobey God did the very same thing, right? It was Adam and Eve, and they were in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord had told them, you can eat of this tree and that tree and any tree you want to, just don't eat from the one tree, and next thing you know, Adam and Eve are standing there and a serpent starts talking to them and deceiving them and then Eve eats it and then Eve gives some to Adam and Adam eats it and then their eyes are opened. Well, next thing you know, the Lord comes by and they're scared and they're covering themselves with fig leaves and the Lord comes and holds them accountable. And he looks at Adam and he says, what is this you've done? And Adam says, it was this woman, Right? And, and even worse than that, this woman that you gave me, he says. He blames it on his wife, blames it on the Lord who gave him his wife, and that's the end of his story. And so the Lord looks to Eve, and she says, 
the serpent, right? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, everything they said was true. I mean, the Lord did give Eve to Adam and Eve did give some fruit to Adam and the serpent did deceive Eve, but none of that was their problem. What really happened? They looked at the tree and they saw that it was desirable. They wanted it and so they ate it. So Adam's problem wasn't the wife that God had given him, it was the fact that he wanted that fruit that God had forbidden. Eve's problem wasn't the fact that the serpent was deceiving her, it was the fact that she wanted this fruit that God had forbidden. Well, James is saying here that our problem is not the person next to us, it's not the God above us that is walking us through the situation that we're in. Our problem is that we want what God has forbidden. If we didn't want to do bad things, Temptation wouldn't be a problem at all. Look how he says it in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But, here's what really happens, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, if you're into hunting and fishing and you're wishing that you were like out on the lake this morning, but you couldn't because it was too cold, you're about to get a treat because James is using hunting and fishing terms to, to make his point here. When it says that he is carried away and enticed, some of your translations might say lured instead of carried away. And if they say lured, that's because the word that James used there was the word for a fishing lure. And he's intentionally pulling a word from the fishing world. Then later when it says enticed, that's the word that hunters would use for the bait that they would set in a trap, right? They're trying to entice an animal to come into their trap. It's the cheese of the mousetrap or the peanut butter, if you really know what you're doing, of a mousetrap that gets the mouse and entices them in there. Now, here's, a, here's kind of a, a neat thing about fishing. When you're fishing, you're always trying to manipulate the hunger of the fish, right? You're trying to cast the right bait into the pond, so that the fish will want what you're casting. I'll tell you a story about fishing. My son and I went on our first father-son fishing trip last year. We went to the park, and uh, there's Josiah with his BB-8 fishing pole that his papa gave him. And we went out there. I think we started with some bread and kind of crumbled up some bread and put it on the fish, and he put it out there. And Josiah's problem with fishing is that his dad does not know how to fish. And so we're out there trying to figure out how to catch some of these fish. And he's sitting there just like that. And for, I don't know, it was like a half an hour. And he's just like... Dad, the fish aren't biting. What's going on? And uh, this, is, this park that we were at has a big walking trail all around the lake. And one of the retired guys walks by a few times. And the third time or so, he's like, y'all need a worm. What, you, you get over here and get a worm. And so I'm like, well, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So we go over to the mud, and I start digging it up. And sure enough, I find a little worm. And so I take it over there, and I put it on the hook. And he takes the pole and he casts it in a first time and doesn't get anything, casts it in a second time, and lo and behold, guess what he gets? We'll show you a picture of it. The littlest fish you ever did see. It was at least an inch and a half long, and it was beautiful. And so we marveled at our fish together, and then we got an idea. I said, hey buddy, what do you think the bigger fish in this lake eat? And he says, hmm, the little fish in this lake. And I said, that's right, buddy. So we take that fish, we put that fish on the hook, and now he goes and he casts that. And four or five times later, boom, look what he catches. A real fish. 
And you can even see the other one coming out of its mouth there. It's kind of gross, I know, but there it is. <laughs> so we had to do all that work just to figure out what the fish were biting that day. A couple weeks later, Josiah's papa took him fishing, and 20 minutes later, he calls me on the phone. Dad, I already caught 20 fish. I think it was nine fish. I already caught nine fish. Like in 20 minutes, he had caught nine fish. Why? Because his papa knows what the fish are hungry for, and I don't. Now, if you don't know what those fish are going to eat, all the lures you got there and all the hooks and everything, it doesn't matter because the fish just swims right by, right? But if the fish looks at the bait and wants the bait that's when the fish is in trouble, right? Because the whole name of this game here is to manipulate the desires of that fish so that you can hook it and you can pull it out of the water. Well, James is saying that temptation works the same way for us. None of it works except for the fact that we want bad things. If we didn't want the bait, we could just walk right by and it wouldn't matter. And so he says each person is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, here's the thing about that that he's trying to get to, because he builds on that. Now, that, that's dangerous enough there, right? It's dangerous enough that our own hearts are craving sin, right? It's dangerous enough that we want things that are going to kill us. But the goal of fishing is to lure the fish so that you can hook the fish and pull it out of the pond, right? Well, Satan's goal in temptation, it's, he's not a catch-and-release fisherman here. He's trying to bait you so that he can hook you so that he can pull you all the way out of the pond. Now, Josiah and I, we turned that fish back because it was too small to cook. Satan is not that type of fisherman. So look at what verse 15 says. It says, Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? So it starts with temptation. It starts with desire leading to sin, right? Just like a fish that's going for the bait, right? But that's not where it ends. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the fisherman casts the hook, hoping to hook the fish and pull the fish out of the safety of the pond. Satan casts the hook of temptation to you, hoping to hook you and pull you completely out of the safety of Jesus' arms. So what starts as an inappropriate glance between a man and a woman can eventually build and turn into physical sin between the two of them, right? But that's not the end game. That's not Satan's end game. He's not trying to lure you into sin so that you'll feel bad about it and then maybe in a few weeks come back to Jesus. No, he wants much more than that. He wants your whole heart. He knows that what can happen is eventually the pull of that sin can become so strong that you might decide eventually that this just isn't worth it. This following Jesus stuff just isn't worth how much I can enjoy what is out there and how much I have enjoyed whatever I've found with this person or this sin or this drug or this thing that I'm into. That's worth more to me than following Jesus. And so I am out the door, guys. He is trying to pull you all the way out of the pond. He is not a catch and release fishermen. Unless you think that this can't happen to you, I've got to warn you, it happened to someone that I love dearly, a friend of mine who, who taught me quite a lot about how to care for my first house and who I still owe a lot to in that way. Uh, in a really terrible situation, his wife had left him 
And uh, in the middle of his sorrows, he, he met another woman and, and found himself a girlfriend. Uh, but rather than kind of pursuing things in a godly way, uh, his friends would plead with him because they could tell that this girl wasn't good for him. Uh, but he just wouldn't listen, and he wound up falling into sin with her. And so his friends in the church, he was the leader of a Bible study in our church, and his friends in the church were just pleading with him, like, brother, come back. Like, don't, don't continue and sin with this woman. Come back. And he finally just decided that he had had enough of even trying. And he walked out of the church and left. And the last thing that he said to us was, well, she and I are going to go see if maybe there's another church where we can be a little more comfortable uh, we wish you guys weren't so judgmental. That's what he said to us on the way out the door. Um, and I love that guy. <laughs> I still love him. And the way that James pleads with us, don't be that guy who thinks that you can slip into sin and then very easily slip back out of it. Remember, that is not Satan's goal in pulling you into sin. He wants your whole heart, and he wants you to walk away from Jesus. All these temptations that you walk through, they may, not be, they may not all lead you into sin. If you entertain just one desire, it may not be enough to pull you into sin, but it may be enough to pull you into sin, right? And all these sins that we fall into, they may not all pull us away from the faith, but some of us can. Some of them can. Okay, so we said so far that God isn't tempting us and that we're tempting ourselves. And here's why he says all that. He wants us to see that God is not the one thing tempting you because if you're going to make it through temptation, you've got to trust God, right? And if in the middle of your temptation, uh, you've become convinced that God is the bad guy, well, you're, you're not going to trust God and you're going to fall to temptation. And so here's what James tr says next in verse 16. He gets pastoral, he gets loving, and he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He says, don't be deceived. Like, don't be tricked, he says, into thinking that God is the one tempting you. No, God is good. God doesn't do that. He's so good. He says, don't be deceived into entertaining small temptations because you think they won't pull you into sin. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't be deceived into thinking that small sins don't turn into bigger sins that don't turn into walking away from the entire faith. Don't be deceived, he says. God's gifts, God's gifts are better then whatever thing is tempting you. God is so good, he says, that God cast every star up in the sky. He calls him the Father of lights, which just means the God who slung all of those stars in the sky. Have you ever stood out in the middle of nowhere where you can really see the skies, really see the stars at night, and just looked up, and, and they just fill your heart with awe, don't they? You look up, and you see them and the crazy thing is that if you come back in an hour, they've moved, right? And there's like new glory up there. And there was a constellation that you couldn't see that now you can see. And there was maybe a planet that you can't see anymore that you could see before. And if you come back the next night, they're even different a little bit. And you come back a month later and they're different a little bit. Whatever you saw in that memory you're thinking of, of those stars in the sky that night, they will never be exactly that way again. 
And you could capture them every night over and over again. And they would never be the same. That's part of their glory. Photographers go out there and they try to catch pictures of the stars. But it's so hard because you've got to leave the camera open for like 30 seconds in order to capture enough light. And in that 30 seconds that you have to leave the camera open, the stars move. And so instead of having stars, you have these little lines. And so these guys do all these calculations to try to get it just right because those things are moving all the time, and that's part of their glory. That's part of what makes the stars so wonderful at night. Well, the stars are brilliant in their glory, and they're always changing. But the Lord, it says, is brilliant in his glory, and he is never changing, right? There's no shadow, there's no variation or change in the Lord's goodness. And so when the stars move across the sky, and when your life goes from good to bad to good again to bad again, and when your heart kind of changes to, I want this, but now I want this, now I want that, that whole time, God is steady there, and he is good, and he is reliable. And that's why we sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. In any circumstance, he is good, and he is un changing. And so when we talk about temptation and we talk about trusting the unchanging God who gives good gifts, there's one gift that really matters to the tempted person, and it's what's said in verse 18, which essentially says that God chose to start remaking us now so that we could be a small picture of how he is going to remake everything one day. We've got it on the screen there. I know it can be awkward to understand, but here's what it says. It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This is one of the best gifts that God gives. And what it means is this. If you follow Jesus, think back to what you were like before you started following Jesus. Just kind of imagine, remember that person. Okay, now think back forward again to what you're like today and just compare the two people for a moment in your mind. And if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you're probably thinking, I'm really different, right? God has really changed. It's almost like he made me new. And if you haven't been following him very long, you're probably noticing just some slight differences, and you know that those will get greater over time. Because what the Lord is doing is he is making us new and has made us new. That's why it says he brought us forth. He brought us forth by the word of truth, which means that as you heard the gospel, as you heard the truth that Jesus died and rose to secure forgiveness and eternal life for you, you heard that proclaimed and the Lord made you new. And then you read his word over and over for days and days and weeks and years and then decades and the Lord used that to make you new by the word of truth. He's bringing you forth again and you hear preaching Sunday after Sunday straight from the word of God and that is making you new. And eventually you're looking back over years or decades and you're saying, and I'm a totally different person now, right? God really has made me new. And the cool thing about it is that you're still you, right? It's not like you're, you're, a, you're a severed person, like that's a different person. You're still you, but you're a new and, and better you. That's what the Lord has done in your life if you've been following him for any time. Well, what he says here is that that is a first fruits of his creatures, and what that means is that that picture of change that God has brought in your life is a small but glorious picture of the change he is bringing to all of creation when he comes back. He has entered into your life and he has changed you. But one day he is going to come again into this world and when he does, he is going to change 
everything just like he has changed you. So he is going to change the weather to where it's, I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be something awesome. We can't imagine what it's like now, but we're not going to complain about it anymore. I know that much. He's going to change government to where we won't have anything to complain about in the government anymore. He's going to change our infrastructure and make it new and the way that trees grow and the way that everything works and the way that our bodies work. He'll change it all and make it all new and all better. And that little change that you've appreciated in your life is just a small picture because that that's what he does when he comes. He changes things, gives them new life, and makes them better. So that's what it means when it says that the Lord has changed you and brought you forth by the word of truth so that you could be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He uses that imagery of first fruits to show us that. And that may be unfamiliar imagery to you, but to them, to the readers of the book of James, it was not unfamiliar at all, actually. Uh, they, you know, they were Jewish Christians, most of them raised in Jewish households, and so they knew about those festivals and sacrifices. It was their way of life. So when they see first fruits, it's like us seeing like Christmas or Thanksgiving or something that we're really familiar with. And what, they, what that experience would have been like is if you're a, say you're a little boy and you're raised in a, in a Jewish household back in the first century, and so let's say that your father is a corn farmer. There's a lot of corn fields around here. Let's say your father's a corn farmer. And harvest would come due every fall, and so you're not big enough yet to go out there and work the fields yet, so you're just inside doing your thing. And one day you come down the stairs, and the harvest is over with, and there's a big box of corn on the table, just a huge box of corn. Now, the corn in the house ran out a long time ago, so you're, you're craving corn. Like, you're thinking, we're going to have some cream corn, and we're going to have some corn on the cob, and we're going to have some popcorn, and we're going to have this kind of corn. You're like, uh, you're like Bubba from Forrest Gump, like, listening to all the kinds of shrimp, except you got corn. You get corn bread, we're going to have corn muffin, corn, everything is going on, right? And you walk down the steps, and you see that massive box of corn. And what that box is, is your father's first fruits. And that is when he makes a harvest, he gets a great harvest, he divides out a 60th of it, or a 40th or a 30th maybe if he really wants to be generous, and he puts it all in a big box, and he takes that to the Lord to offer to him. The first little bit from the crop is taken to the Lord to offer to the Lord. And you're that little boy, and you see that box, and you're not allowed to eat any of that corn. But you're not upset about it. You know why? Because you see a box that big of corn, and you're thinking, well, if the first fruits box is that big, there's a whole barn of that stuff out there. And that little boy's getting excited, right? He's thrilled because there's a whole barn of corn waiting for him. We're going to have cream corn. We're going to have corn on the cob. We're going to have corn bread. We're going to have corn muffins. Then we're going to go back to cream corn again. And he is so excited. Why? Because that first fruits is a little picture of what is coming down the road and what is waiting. And James says in the same way, the change that the Lord has brought in your life is just a little picture of the change that he is going to bring and the kingdom that he is going to bring when he comes comes back. And that, my brothers and sisters, is worth waiting for, isn't it? That is worth night after night of temptation and holding on to the Lord through whatever he is dragging you through. That is worth night after night of tears. That is worth day after day of loneliness. Whatever it is that we're walking through and holding fast to the Lord, I promise you, it is worth what he is bringing back. And that is why this passage started out the way it did. Let's look back at verse 12. It just says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. 
For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Remember a few weeks ago, we said that hardship is in your life to give you endurance. Well, this is why, because those who keep their endurance, those who stick facts to Jesus in their suffering and in their temptation, what do they get? The crown of life, eternal life placed upon their heads when Jesus comes back. And in that awesome kingdom I was just talking about, he's got a place for those who stick close to him. Blessed are you if you hold on. Well, I'll close with just one, one story, one illustration. Does anybody know the significance of March 28th of this coming year? Any sports fans in the house that are looking forward to March 28th? Anybody think of what it is? Opening day, that's right. Opening day for Major League Baseball is coming up on March 28th. So all around the country, people are going to take off work and they're going to tell their boss they're sick, but they're lying, they're not sick. They're going to the ballpark. All around the country, people are going to find a gap in their schedule so they can sit down and watch the first pitch of the year get thrown. It's a great time of celebration, a great pastime for our nation. But whatever happens this year, I can't imagine it topping what happened last year on opening day. Last year, it was down in Miami, I suppose, and the Miami Marlins threw the first pitch of the year to the Chicago Cubs, and everybody was there. The stadium was full. Miami Stadium is never full, but it was full this time, you know, because they were excited because baseball is here, and there's going to be a whole season coming, and so the pitcher winds up, and he throws it, and what these people are used to is that first pitch goes, and it gets thrown, and then they hear the pop of the the ball going into the glove and with that sound baseball is underway baseball is here well what happened last year was nobody heard the sound of the ball hitting the glove because the batter for the cubs he swung at it he took a big old swing at it and so instead they heard crack and everybody kind of whoa wait a minute that's not the sound we're used to hearing and they looked over and watched him smack that ball over the right field wall. The first pitch of the year was a home run. And that stadium went nuts. I mean, they just went crazy. Here's the thing. The Cubs were the away team at that game. And the stadium still went crazy, right? Because it didn't even matter that like their hometown team had just gotten a home run hit at them. That's not what they were thinking about at all. Their eyes were fixed on what that home run meant. It meant that about 5,000 more home runs were coming that year. It meant that soon there was going to be an all-star game. And it meant that soon there were going to be pennant races. And people were going to be going for records. And there were going to be home runs. And there were going to be strikeouts. And there was going to be playoffs. And the World Series champion is going to be crowned at the end of this. And it's all coming now with just the sound of the crack of a bat and so you better believe that place just went crazy that home run was a small but a very glorious picture of what was coming for the rest of the year well in the same way just as we've said uh, the change that the Lord has brought in your life is a small but a glorious picture of what he is going to bring when he comes back Whatever temptation you are walking through right now, whatever urge you have to run away from the Lord's truth, run away from his ways, and just run away completely from him, enduring through that is worth it because of what is coming. Let's pray.